Welcome to 2022 on the Top Order podcast. We've had a little hiatus over the Christmas period to finish up our mince pies, our turkey and ham. But we're back on deck now to record this, the first episode of 2022. We've got heaps to talk about. Ross Taylor's retirement wicket, England, Australia, the Super Smash, India, South Africa and a whole host more. All on the Top Order podcast. Stay tuned. Well, Happy New Year, fellas. Recording uh, remotely, again, a wee bit of a COVID scare here in Auckland, so we're back on the Zoom tracks. Baldy resplendent in his uh, studio with all of our microphones and merchandise in the background, um, but we're all in our um, offices. Lippy, you're you're back in, the, in front of the garage door again. We've got to start with New Zealand, though, haven't we? A um, couple of test matches against Bangladesh. One of your test greats bowing out in, look, I guess really weird scenes. When's the last time you bowled in a test match? It it, it felt a bit benefit game to me, but um, yeah, I, I guess let's talk about the cricket first and then uh, maybe the theatre that unfolded with Ross Taylor taking that final wicket. Oh, it's great. I love it. I love it. Um, I'm not so thrilled about him going round the wicket. I would have liked to, um, you know, to, for him to come over the wicket and spin one through the gate, but you know, aside from that, look, it was it's like um in rugby league where, you know, a great is retiring and they let them do the, the final uh goal kick at the end of the game or, or you know, when someone scores a try. So look, he he's deserved that. He's earned that. He's been an absolute champion. You know, there'll be uh there'll be a lot of discussion about him in the coming months and it, and it's all totally deserved. And you know, I I was texting with Raj when the news came out that it had happened and I started feeling really sad, you know. I I, I guess we've sort of not always known it was coming. Uh, we've, he's he was you know someone that I suppose his test form had been on the slide a little bit, but you know, yeah, it's just sad. He's he's been a a, a great player, and you know I'll miss those cover drives. I'll miss that slog sweep, the the cut. He gave a few examples of that in his his final innings and. I mean, absolute class from Bangladesh, the way they uh, they gave him a send-off as well. So, yeah, just beautiful stuff. And, um, you know, I, I hope we get to see that, that tongue come out uh, for the, one of those one-day games and he goes out in, in style in those. Yeah, I echo those comments. I think one of the things that I, I was I was thinking about and, and pondering was that he was actually on his own for quite a long time. And when, when I say on his own, I mean... There was no real world class batsman uh, that that we have now that that um, that were around him. He was he was by himself for a long time and and scoring big runs. Um, he went through a lot of turmoil with the whole Ben McCullum thing and the uh, Sri Lanka captaincy debacle, but he still managed to score a hundred under that duress. Um, look, he's had a, he's had a great he's had a great career, and he'll look back on it very fondly, I think. Yeah, look, I picking up on that. I, I think he's actually. We just said that you know his test form has dropped a little bit. I think he's a bit of a victim of the fact that we hardly played any ODI cricket and that people think that he's on the downslide because his ODI form in, in recent years. I you know I looked at some stats. Um, I was thinking actually about that um, ODI series against India in 2020 and and actually how pivotal that was. If you guys remember that we'd just gone to Australia, we'd been absolutely thumped in that test series when we all had high hopes. Then we came back and we lost the T20 series 5-0 to India. And they were all games that, like, I think, you know, four of them from memory we should have won. They were all games that 
a few of them went to super overs and we kept losing these super overs. I think we needed, you know, one or two to win at various times and off a couple of balls at the end of games and we just couldn't get across the line. People were calling for Steady to be um, sacked. There was there was huge, you know, New Zealand, it was felt like New Zealand's in a bit of a crisis here. And then Taylor just dominated that ODI series. He scored a big 100, uh, 109 chasing down India's 347 in the, in the first ODI. And, you know, I, I, when I looked at his stats for recent times, he's averaged 64 in ODI cricket since the start of 2017 and 57 in ODI cricket since the start of 2011 with 1,800. Since, you know, there are not many... You're talking Virat Kohli, AB de Villiers, those kind of players that have records that good in ODI cricket. So it's a, it's a real shame that we didn't, you know, hopefully we will get to see him bow out in his best format. It looks like that's that's the case. But, yeah, it's a shame, I suppose, we've seen so much test cricket for Ross in a format that he hasn't done so well at recently. Lippy, sticking with the test cricket, we'll talk about the second test match. Um, I'm sure a comprehensive uh, victory, but... Preceding that, we, we've got to talk about that Boxing Day, uh, oh, sorry, New Year's Day test match at, at the Mount, which was what you can only describe as a comprehensive victory for Bangladesh. Thoughts on that from a New Zealand perspective first? Well, I, I, yeah, I've got a few thoughts, but I, I'm sort of tempted to, I would like to throw it over to you guys, probably Raj first. I mean, I, I actually just on that test, Bangladesh just out New Zealand, New Zealand, didn't they? They, they really just kind of played the exact formula that you need for test cricket in New Zealand. They scored a big total uh, after New Zealand didn't really kick on in that first innings. And then they just bowled really well. And, and that's, yeah, that's sort of how that test unfolded. But in terms of actually the feeling, I suppose there's been a lot of mixed feelings around, uh, obviously, Bangladesh. There's been absolute delight. You know, I, I think it's probably their best test win uh, ever in their history. Um, certainly, you know, away. they've beaten England, they've beaten Australia, but those tests have been at home. But from a New Zealand point of view, Raj, were you, you know, disgusted? Were you embarrassed? Were you, did you think, this is wonderful, good on Bangladesh? Where were you on that spectrum? I'm going to need a thesaurus, I think, with the, <laughs> those kind of synonyms. Um, I guess a lot of people have put out the sort of the embarrassed word around that, that victory, but... But I don't think that there's any any embarrassment in actually losing to a side that's played almost five days of error-free cricket. Uh, regardless of who you're playing against, it's still international cricket, it's test cricket. If you play a team that's almost perfect for five days, you're very rarely going to come out on top. Uh, probably on that first day, aside from, you know, there was three hours there when New Zealand looked like they were putting themselves really much, really in command of the whole test match. Bangladesh fought their way back and never looked back uh, for the rest of the test. So, look, I, I'm not embarrassed. I think they outplayed us. Uh, they weren't able to carry it on into the second test like we saw um, over the last five, three days. Um, but, uh, look, no embarrassment for me. Uh, they were well-deserved for, for, for Bangladesh, and they deserve all the all the plaudits that they're getting for it from around the world. So, good on them. Yeah, Binksy Baldy, what do you guys think? Well, I think you've got to give credit to Bangladesh. You have a look at their, their batting innings. Hassan Joy, Shanto, Mominal Haq, Litton Das, and Mahedi Hassan Maraz, all, all making runs in a, in a big score. So it wasn't just kind of one guy 
or you know Bangladesh as they have done in the past relying on one or two guys and we also have to remember that some of their most senior players aren't in that lineup you know you think of Mamadouli you think of Shakib Al Hassan and those kind of guys aren't playing in these test matches so it's a relatively young side players new coming into test cricket and they performed incredibly well they they played New Zealand without fear and and they played like it and I think the if anything the second test they played with expectation weighing on their shoulders a little bit uh, but they have to they have to get full credit particularly for that batting innings to score 458 against New Zealand a good New Zealand attack and then to bowl New Zealand out cheaply is is as good an effort as the 458 so you know you've just got to give them credit for playing a really good test match the only disappointment for me is that they weren't able to back it up in um in Christchurch in this last three days and New Zealand really were able to put them through to the sword in the second test. Yeah, I think it does them a little bit of a disservice to to even really probably mention that that embarrassment word. I think uh, Bangladesh cricket has come a long, long way in, in the last four or five years. Their competitiveness in all forms of the game now um, can't really be questioned. Um, and I think the thing that impressed me the most was that they won it playing, you know, what I would say was really, really good three-dimensional cricket. Their spinners were impressive in the in the first innings and, and Ebedot uh, Hussain only took, I think, the one wicket in that first innings and then he came strong in that second dig. And look, any team that can score uh, 400 runs um, or thereabouts overseas, um, as, as England are proving, um, very, very difficult to do, um, have got to be given full credit. So um, I, I just think it shows their continued emergence as a, as a test playing nation to to really um, really note when are, when are you guys going to let them play in your countries australia and, and england that <laughs> I, that's seems like they might deserve that now well absolutely if they're able to beat the world test champions on their home patch then certainly they deserve a they deserve a run it against australia and against england look the the scheduling of cricket has been a bugbear for mine for a long long time and and i know that Test cricket has to pay its own way in a certain extent and that the big marquee series against England and Australia are going to dominate those calendars for those countries. But absolutely, Bangladesh and New Zealand and the West Indies and Pakistan all deserve to play more Test cricket in those three big nations. You're absolutely right. And look, Raj, you must be, you know, we've gone 10 minutes of this podcast. We haven't talked about, you know, who's someone who's, you know, proving himself as the best batsman in the world, Devin Conway. What an amazing uh, first couple of tests he's had to this summer and obviously his whole career. But there's been some amazing stats that have come out uh, about where he ranks in his first five tests. And I think Gaviscar and uh, there's one other player whose name escapes me right now who's who's above him. Unbelievable uh, how much how many runs Gaviscar scored in his first five tests. I think that's that's almost the thing that stood out the most. But yeah, a word or a word or two from Devin Conway from you, surely. No, no, definitely. The, the stats are all there. Um, there's a there's a, a number of records that he's broken so far in his, his his few tests that he's played. But for me, it's it's not actually those numbers. It's the way that he's really looked in control. Uh, on pitches here in New Zealand where they've lost the toss and they've been put into bat uh, on green tops, he's looked in control. Uh, and uh, look, I, I mentioned it uh, a couple of podcasts ago last year. Which is not that long ago, but I think that he's going to be a mainstay for our for our in our order. Be that at three or four, whatever position Kane wants to bat going forward with the um, the vacancy there at number four, um, he'll be a mainstay for the next five six years, if not more, uh, in, in all three formats of the game. So uh, here's to many more hundreds for Devin Conway. It's amazing, actually, isn't it, how quickly he's become 
so vital to our lineup in all three formats, just like you said. Though every single format now, you think, oh, Conway is, you know, Conway and Williamson are like the most important players in our lineup. It's, it's, yeah, it really is unbelievable. It's got massive Mike Hussey kind of vibes all through it. And, um, you know, I guess the way, actually the way Will Young has batted in these couple of games and the way he batted in India, sort of, I know we, you know, we just talked about Ross and stuff, but I do feel like we're not necessarily going to miss him in that top four uh, in that test lineup because of the how comfortable Will Young has looked. And, you know, Young, Latham, Williamson, Conway, whichever order they decide to do it, I think they will go Williamson three, uh, he'll stay at three and, and Conway will go to four. But which, whichever way they do that, it does still look very, uh, very impressive. And I mean, Tom Latham kind of emphasised that today or, or yesterday, sorry, with his, with his 250, didn't he? So question for probably the, the Kiwi boys on the pod. Who's in a bit of strife after these couple of games? Uh, Tom Blundell um, hasn't really got going and big gloves to fill with BJ Watling's relatively recent retirement, but we can only talk about that for, for so long. But who alongside him for you boys is is struggling a little bit? So, yeah, Blundell's definitely one, I think, is, is in a, a little bit of strife. I'll put the question back on you shortly, Adam, just around his keeping. But as a batsman, I think that he really has been under some pressure. A poor series in India, uh, a poor series in Bangladesh up until that last at-bat where he got 50. A really real quick-fire 50. Uh, and I think that's how he should always play, with that positive intent. I feel like if Martin Guptill had that same positive intent that he has at the top of the order with the white ball, he would be just as successful with the red ball. But um, that that's where I'm drawing the similarities to uh, to, uh, Tom Blundell here. If, if he goes out there and is really aggressive at number six, I think he can be, can be really successful. Um, I'll just throw back to you, Binksy, real quickly on his, his keeping. What do you make of that? Yeah, look, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but the, the standard of keeping at the moment is not a lot to write home about. Um, perhaps the best I've seen over the course of uh, the last couple of months or so was Ollie Pope's little cameo with four dismissals, which is um, the most amount of dismissals for a substitute in a test match, I think, is, is the record. But Alex Carey's been disappointing. Joss Butler's been disappointing. And I, I think Blundell has as well. Hasn't looked tidy at times. Um, and I think that, that that's, um, you know, that's one of the things that when you start to notice that and when the batting's not firing, it really puts pressure on you uh, unless you can kind of point to one of your disciplines going really, really well when you've got that uh, two strings, uh, str- strings to the bye. The other one I wanted to talk about was um, Henry Nichols. So I think that the the Ross Taylor retirement has actually benefited benefited him a little bit. Um, that seventy five that he got in the first innings against Bangladesh, I actually really enjoyed that innings. I think he looked really assured and looked really good, and he was probably on for a hundred uh, if uh, the tail wagged a little bit with him uh, there. But real rocks and diamonds. He's the Sean Kenny Dale at the moment of the uh, of the uh, New Zealand batting lineup, and you know those those ducks that he had to in the last couple of bats there. Uh, do you think that he's actually under any pressure? I mean, I don't know what the, you probably know more than this, more about this than me, Lippy. Is there anything coming up behind him for that number five spot? Uh, I don't. I think both him and Blundell, to be honest, will get will get the summer in terms of their tests. And and Nichols, um, the thing that really well, obviously, works in Nichols' favour that he had a massive summer last year when he was under a bit of pre- even you know was under some pressure that at that moment we were sort of thinking Conway's going to come in Will Young's knocking on the door 
who you know who was under the most pressure and it was at that time it was these same two guys Blunder and, and Nichols were the ones being talked about to to drop out Nichols had that massive summer but you know when you think back to that summer he got dropped about 15,000 times but he did cash in and I, I, look I think he'll get this summer the uh, what really works in his favour as well is that every time he goes down to domestic cricket, it seems like he scores huge runs for Canterbury. He's, you know, he seems to pile it on whenever, whenever he's playing for them. And I actually think that um, the guys coming through, and um, I mean, it's it's sort of tricky because the, at the moment we're playing a, a heavy dose of Ford Trophy and Super Smash stuff at the moment, so it's all white ball stuff. But the, the ones that are performing really well are the, actually the keepers. Uh, and Dane Cleaver and, and Cam Fletcher and, and even Max Chu actually has, has been chipping in a little bit for Otago uh, even though they haven't been going that well. So, you know, I, I think Cleaver and Fletcher are probably the ones putting the pressure on, on Blundell more, more and, um, you know, we may end up seeing one of them get a go in, at least in this um, in this tour to Australia because it seems like it's going to be two completely different squads that go. One, the white ball squad will go to Australia for three ODIs and a T20. And then uh, the test squad will stay at home to prepare for the, the South Africa two tests. So, yeah, I would say, you know, there are there are a few other people in the mix. Joe Carter scored 100 for, uh, for ND in the Ford Trophy the other day. And he's been someone who's kind of been around that NDA, uh, New Zealand A scene for, for a while. There are, there are certainly guys around... But yeah, I think Nichols has has done enough uh, over the past eighteen months and, and kind of got enough, you know, money in the bank there to to stick there for a while. Unless he obviously has you know two bad tests against South Africa again, I'm sure he will then still go on tour to to England. But you know, we we shall see what happens in the the remainder of the Plunkett Shield whether someone else might do enough because that's that's how Devon Conway got in, right? They've they've shown now that if someone really knocks on the door in first-class cricket, they're prepared to pick them and, and give them a go. That's how Finn Allen got his, his uh, opening into the, the T20 side, which is, is really encouraging for New Zealand domestic cricket. Were there any other standout performers for you, Lippy, from that Test Series? Look, I think we've covered a lot of the, the key performers. I, you know, I, I think special mention probably to, to Litton Das today for his innings for, for Bangladesh. Um, you know, I know we're, we're focusing mainly on New Zealand, but that was a... A very impressive performance, and he looked really—he's actually looked really assured in, in all the innings that he's played uh, this time around. But probably uh, another New Zealander that deserves special mention is Trent Bolt. Just uh, you know, beautiful, lovely way that he picked up his uh, 300th Test wicket, and, and it's actually just amazing. Um, you know, I know we've talked a lot about in recent times about the this this New Zealand side, and I suppose this New Zealand side and the core of it that's been. Uh, going for a while now and, and really become one of the better sides in the world. But, Bolt, you know, to have Bolt, Southie and Wagner all in that side at the same time and, and for so long, and, you know, it, it's, it, it really, really is impressive. And I think we're sort of being spoiled in the terms of what what quality we have at the moment. Though, you know, I think I saw some quotes from Trent Bolt talking about how it was really special to have Tim Southie there with him. He's been someone who's, you know, been at... at alongside him since under 17s level and you know just just special that that we're getting to enjoy this and and you know there's actually no real signs that either of them are slowing down and um you know I think it, it there is going to come a time where um Jameson is is 
going to have to be the one to step up and, and I guess lead that bowling attack. But at the moment, it looks a few years away. So before we get back to test cricket in the form of the Ashes, let's talk a little bit of domestic T20, both the Super Smash and the Big Bash in full flow. What's caught your eye in the Super Smash so far, Lippy and, and Raj? Well, look, I, I know I keep banging on about this, but the, the wicket-keeping battle is is really something I'm particularly focused on this summer. And, and yeah, Cleaver and, and Fletcher both have just been super, super impressive. Uh, you know, almost every time they come out to bat, Dane Cleaver's has been scoring big runs. He's actually had the last couple of games off for, for paternity leave. But And Cam Fletcher doesn't have the same weight of runs, although I think he's moved up to about fourth in the um, top in the top run scorers charts, but uh, is is playing match winning innings, which is what which is what's so impressive. He's coming in and games that are in the balance, and he actually a lot, last couple of games alongside Henry Shipley, who's been able to just come in and and hit some big balls. Uh, it's been really impressive the way he's just been able to come in and and win those games. So look, those are two of the biggest standouts for some. We've got to mention Michael Bracewell, who just played an absolutely amazing innings for for Wellington. He's actually someone who's kind of been on the scene for a long time, and and was touted. You know, I'm pretty confident that he played under 19 New Zealand stuff. He's someone that's you know touted for higher honours at, at various points, and has had good moments and good uh, good seasons uh, in and for both Otago and then uh, now for Wellington. But just hasn't hasn't quite put a couple back to back, but. Honestly, that, that innings that he played at Pukakura Park, Wellington's 40 for five, to then just put 140 not out to win that game and chase down 228. It's astonishing innings. And, you know, you know I haven't, I can't, uh, I'm not a T20 historian here in New Zealand, but that's got to be one of the, you know, it's the highest T20 score in New Zealand, domestic cricket, but it, it's actually got to be pretty close to the best ever innings uh, in New Zealand domestic cricket. So, just stunning stuff. On the women's side, the the Blaze are just they're just an awesome side, you know. Uh, they're seven and zero now. They look up and down that lineup. They just, you know, th- they just look the winners. I I don't I don't know what more I can say about that. The Sparks have been uh, very impressive in terms of uh, how they have actually bounced back. And um, I think I mentioned it in an earlier podcast about how they'd gone. Uh, they've had some pretty lean years, but you know they they look like they might be right at the business end and at least challenging the blaze and, and pushing them but yeah look it's there's there's still a few weeks to go and probably plenty more to talk about in the coming weeks as we come to finals time i think the last couple that i will mention before i let someone else talk because i know i've been going a while a couple of young players that i'm really interested in um obviously a bit biased here spin wise but i've been really impressed with what i've seen from Eddie Ashok uh, for, for Auckland, I know he probably hasn't had the returns in terms of wickets and, and things that we saw, but looked someone that has kind of a lot of strings to his bow, can bowl uh, that T20 kind of style, can, but looks like someone that can bowl, uh, you know, maybe four-day cricket, and hopefully we get to see him in a bit of four-day cricket later on. And, and on the women's side, again, spin, I've been really impressed with, with what Eden Carson's done for, for the Sparks every time I've seen her, just really tidy picking up wickets, really, really cheap economy rates. So, yeah, encouraging stuff for, for those young players. Bordy, let's hop across the Tasman. Your Brisbane Heat, 
sitting just outside the top four in the table in the Big Bash. What's caught your eye in the tournament so far that's just about to be moved, I think, to a secure bubble in Melbourne or Victoria? So all the games are going to take place in Victoria and an expanded list of players um, to pick from um, as replacements with a couple of guys. Um, Avendano, I think, already having represented two teams in this year's tournament so far. Yeah, it's been a real challenge for a lot of these squads that have been affected heavily by COVID. Um, the Melbourne Stars probably hit the hardest uh, in terms of their their COVID. They've had guys come in from great cricket, make their debut, play well, then get, and then get COVID. And so the Stars have had a lot of players in and out. The Perth Scorchers are the best side in the competition by a long way. I think they've also been the healthiest side in the competition. But regardless of, of whether or not they're the healthiest, I think all other teams being equal they're the, they're the best side in this competition the Sydney Thunder uh, friend of the podcast Shane Bond not coaching them this year I believe but they're still doing pretty well and they've got some exciting players coming into that side Jason Sanger's coming into his own Tanvir Sanger's performing well but Binksy I got one for you mate this Joe Clark fella he looks the goods to me he scored four or five fifties in in succession for the Melbourne Stars in in mostly what we have to say are losing causes uh, failed today against the Perth Scorchers the Stars got humped again but, mate, he's got 5,600 runs at 37 in first-class cricket. He's got 18 first-class hundreds. He averages 34 in list-day cricket and 28 in um, in T20 cricket now um, at a strike rate of 154. So, look, this guy looks the goods to me, only 25 years old. I'm not sure what his keeping is like, but as a batter, he's certainly putting some numbers on the board. And uh, rather than Sam Billings, I'd be looking at Joe Clark pretty seriously to come into contention for this, uh, this fifth test in Hobart coming up. Yeah, so look, I know a little bit about him. He's actually a Worcestershire boy, so uh, played his early cricket in actually in Shropshire and then um, his major county being Worcestershire um, and had, look, a couple of off-the-field um, incidents where look, essentially um, probably a little bit of a blot on his copybook, but was it in and around that England Lions setup for a pretty decent period of time? Um I actually didn't realise that he was keeping wicket um, for um, for the Stars and, and was actually watching a Stars game and, and looking at a keeper and thinking, God, he looks pretty pretty good. And then realised it was Clark and, and he, he then started to score some runs. And I've actually got this written down in my notes. We've got, I, I guess, a little bit of a, a good thing for an Englishman. Turning over the Test Match cricket has been the best part of my day because whenever I've tuned into the Big Bash straight afterwards, there's been an Englishman performing, Alex Hales, Sam Billings, Clark you've mentioned, and Ben Duckett, who's played a bit of test cricket, all in the top 20 run scorers in the tournament um, so far. And then we've also got um, Saqib Mahmood and, and Timal Mills in the top 20 bowlers for the tournament so far as well. So um, it's been a little bit of solace to see um, Englishmen performing well on Australian soil. Unfortunately, um, just not with the three lines on their chest, unfortunately. Well, we've given you a bit of tyres pumping up. Should we let a little bit of air out and we'll switch from the white ball to the red ball? And you don't have to say that with such go- glee, Michael. Oh, I've, I've tried not to. I've tried to be magnanimous, but we do need to go back as far as the Melbourne Test match. That's where we left off just prior to Christmas. And, well, it wasn't delightful viewing for anyone who was tucking into their Christmas pudding on Christmas Day in England as Australia well, didn't rack up a big score at only 267 against England, but it was enough to win by an inning, strangely enough. England rolled for 185 and then 68. And the debut of Scott Boland, the journeyman 
let's say, medium pacer, honest medium pacer for Victoria, just ripping through the England uh, middle order and taking six for seven in rolling England for 68 in that second innings. That, w- that was a real disappointment for me, that, that test match, because that had, well, it, it, it didn't promise a lot because New Zealand uh, because England haven't been playing well, but I expected them to be a lot better than they were in terms of being beaten by an innings, Australia having only made 268 inside three or four days. A fantastic f- debut for Scott Boland for international listeners to the podcast who don't know who Scott Boland is. Uh, he's uh, only the fourth Aboriginal player um, to play cricket for Australia. In terms of the men, only Jason Gillespie and Scott Boland, Aboriginal players, to to play cricket for Australia and wear the baggy green. And look, he just had a, a, a tremendous debut, put the ball in the right areas, and England weren't really good enough to deal with that, unfortunately, particularly in the second innings. And that led to a number of changes for, or did it lead to a number of changes for England in the in the Sydney Test match? It really didn't. They went sort of with the same side, but, but performed a lot better in that Sydney Test match and, and managed to eke out a draw. Adam or Stu, you wanted to come in here. What did you take away from that Melbourne Test? Oh, I was just going to say, international listeners, if you don't know who Scott Boland is, where have you been for the last two weeks? He's become the best bowler in the world. What's what's? Yeah, you, re- you really need to uh, to look at that because, I mean, we mentioned Devin Conway before, best batter in the world. We've got in the world two, two players that, you know, maybe no one had heard of uh, uh, in terms of outside of their own country. Uh, a year ago. Just amazing stuff. Well, let's not get too carried away with Scott Boland being the, the best player in the world. Look, I wasn't I wasn't a huge fan of the selection. I thought Jai Richardson and Michael Nisa should have got another go after performing well in Adelaide, but they both pulled up sore. Scott Boland being an MCG or a Victorian specialist was was given the given the go. You know, I thought Riley Meredith might have deserved a shot, but what I really did like about the selection was that he's a change bowler. Australia often pick three opening bowlers in their lineup and can't quite squeeze them all in. But Scott Boland is almost the perfect change bowler because he bowls good line and length. He's got tremendous control and he's just always at you and he's making you make decisions. And unfortunately for that England batting lineup, they weren't good enough to make those decisions on a consistent basis. And he was able to, you know, knock over the top of off stumps, snick guys off and, and all of a sudden he's got six for seven and looks like the best bowler in the world. Let's make sure that he goes on an overseas tour and performs well overseas before we get too carried away with, with those kind of, uh, with those kind of raps on, on a guy who has been tremendous in both the first two tests that he's played. Let's turn our attention to that second test. The less we say, I think, for Adam's sake about the first test, the better. But Binksy, a much more spirited performance from England in that second test, uh, in that, sorry, in that fourth test, uh, the New Year's test at the SCG. What did you make of that performance from the England side? Yeah, look, before we come on to the Melbourne test, I do just want to talk a little bit about uh, James Anderson in that Melbourne test match. England getting bowled out. Um, as you mentioned, Boland only taking one wicket in that uh, in that first innings, but England getting bowled out for I think a hundred and uh, what was it a hundred and eighty odd or something 85. like that. Yeah, and then actually managed to restrict Australia to what I thought was probably a little bit below a, a decent first innings par uh, score. And anyone who saw that spell, Anderson and um, Bold took four for. Um, four for twenty-three, I think, and went for an economy rate of just over one and a one and a bit. And it, it was perhaps some of the most skillful bowling I've seen. And um, it, he must be, you know, tearing his hair out that um, you know, his batsman can't um, get a few more runs to to bowl at. And um, moving on to to Sydney, and I think we, you know, we've got to talk a little bit about. Um, the, the fact that England under a little bit of pressure from a COVID perspective, a number of their coaching staff 
um, being uh, close contacts. The, the head coach, Chris Silverwood, not allowed uh, to travel with the team. Net bowlers not able to actually bowl at the, the team in the lead up to that Melbourne test. So quite a lot of off the field stuff going on. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, Bordy, just the one change with Stuart Broad coming in for Ollie Robinson, who's, I think, just run out of gas a little bit um, at the end of this uh, tour, having you know been asked to do a lot of the donkey work. Look, let's not get too carried away. England have scraped a draw where um, there was some overs lost to weather on that final day, I think seven overs. Um, the last three overs had to be bowled um, by what it has to be said was a pretty um, ineffective Nathan Lyon and then the spin of, of Steve Smith uh, finishing off the innings due to uh, due to light. So look, we've scraped by with our skin, by the skins of our teeth in, in that game. Um, which really has got to go to Usman Khawaja's double um, centuries, one in each innings. Um, but from an England point of view, it was just really, really nice to see uh, Johnny Bairstow um, provide uh, some fireworks in that first innings and, and showed uh, a lot of determination to bat in the second innings with what I believe is a broken thumb. And then, look, we, we move into Hobart with... Uh, the England dressing room looking more like an episode of ER than anything else. Um, everybody um, awaiting triage for, for various injuries. So, um, yeah, B- Billings might get a call-up, um, <laughs> although I'm sure we'll come on to that and, and, and lots of problems for the England guys going into that Hobart test, um, all, albeit with perhaps not quite a smile on the face, but at least it's not a grimace. Yeah, look, George Clooney, Eric LaSalle... Noah Wild and Anthony Edwards all standing by in Hobart, ready to tend to the various injuries of that England side. I thought Johnny Bairstow was exceptional in that first innings in particular, batting on. We watched that live, Binksy, at the pub, that that strike on the thumb, and we thought immediately that he was in big trouble. But, you know, he's a tough man, Johnny Bairstow, and, and moved on to score 113. I can't be happier for Johnny Bairstow. I think he's a wonderful cricketer, a very likeable guy, and deserves a good opportunity to show that he is a good test cricketer. And I, I think he's a fantastic test cricketer, and he showed it in that test match. You know, there's a lot of fighting spirit from Ben Stokes, from Johnny Bairstow, and actually from Zach Crawley as well in that second innings to have a bit of a dip. He got 77 off 100 and looked like he was, you know, he looked like he was a test cricketer again. He hasn't looked like a test cricketer for quite a while, but I was quite impressed with the way that he played. Um, look, Hamid was again disappointing. I think Milan had an unusually down test match. He's been reasonably consistent. Joe Root as well didn't really light it up for England. But there was a lot to like about, you know, the fighting spirit I think that England showed in that test match to hold on for a draw because it would have been easy having had Bairstow and Butler dismissed for those bowlers to roll over and, and be dismissed pretty quickly. So um, good on Stuart Broad and, and Jimmy Anderson and co for holding out against a spirited Australian attack. And let's let's hope that England continue to improve for Hobart. What about the neutrals' view, Stu and, and Raj? Any any thoughts on you know whether England really are that woeful and whether Australia are really that good? Yeah, I just want to pick up on what you guys have been saying around England there, and and I suppose almost back to when we first, when you guys first talked about, uh, we had that episode where it was building up to the Ashes, and I think we talked to you guys about what the Ashes means and why it's so big, and I, I suppose I've I've come to see in this series, I've, you know, I've always, I guess, known it, but another example of it in the series has been uh, just how uh, how bad everything has been perceived for England. I know there certainly has been some pretty disappointing performances at times, but it's basically seemed like English cricket has been burned to the ground 
you know, that that it's been a new version of the Ashes. England cricket has been, you know, turned to to Ashes in this series because, you know, the Silverwood, Strauss, all, all those guys are getting pulled down. The 100 is getting pulled down for, for being a disaster. There's been talk about the county championship. There's been saying, you know, what do we do? It's just not preparing players for international cricket. And look, I don't know enough about the England cricket setup. Maybe some of that stuff is worth talking about and, you know, valid discussions that should be had. But I guess the point I want to, I guess, zag on some of that is I don't actually think that England are a disastrous test team. And and I know they're certainly outperforming, their, their white ball stuff is outperforming their test stuff. And perhaps that's why uh, they're getting such a bad rap in, in terms of their tests. But it's not easy to go to Australia. Everyone has seen that. Everyone that goes to Australia, apart from India, Everyone that goes there seems to really struggle, finds it really tough to play in those conditions. As much as we give Australia stick, they're a very good side, and it's been an unbelievable series to be an Australian replacement player. Everyone they seem to pull in from the sidelines has just come in and absolutely dominating. But before you know, before Raj gets a word in here, I just want to run through a couple of England's sort of performances over the last 18 months or so. And they won a test in India for a start. They're, they're really uh, a victim, I think, of the fact that they play so many tests against India and Australia. And, you know, in recent times, they've played quite a few tests against New Zealand, who've been playing well as well. But they beat Sri Lanka 2-0 away. It's not easy to win away from home. They did that. Joe Root was unbelievable in that series. They beat Pakistan and West Indies at home in those series, but they, they took care of business in, at home in the, the previous summer. You know, I, I think they're potentially still the fourth, fifth best test team in the world. Um, I guess we'll see that when we go when they go home to the English summer. But yeah, I, I don't, don't think it's all doom and gloom for England in, in the way that it's been perceived in the media and by their fans at times in the series. I think they're really struggling at the moment to take the to take the opposing view of that. I mean. Just to go back to the Baldy's usage of the word humped, there's been three test matches uh, out of the four that we've seen where England have been absolutely humped. And, and this fourth one, really, it, it's just trying to decide between whether England lose 4-0 or they lose 5-0. Because uh, that's, what, that's, what that's, what that's what essentially that fourth test match was going to tell us. But um, from a statistics point of view, they've only got, over the last six years, they've only got eight players averaging over 30. Uh, two of those are over 40. Joe Root is taken the. There's only seven players who have taken more wickets than Joe Root. Wickets than Joe Root. He's taken 31 over the last six years, um, which is 31 wickets that someone else hasn't hasn't taken. If you know what I mean. I think they're actually really struggling, and they need to go back and, and have a look at how they are um, how how they're set up back at home. There's been a lot of talk about the county game. I'd be interested to hear uh, Binksy's talk about that. They're saying that the, the county pitches that are being prepared. Um, in the county circuit are doing a disservice to to England around the world. Um, yeah, I, I think that they really are struggling with the red ball. Uh, like you said, they've had a lot of success with the white ball. A lot of focus has been put on that, but I think it's probably time to um, to refocus a little bit toward towards the red ball stuff. What do you think, Binksy? Yeah, look, we've not got long enough on the podcast, <laughs> to, to be perfectly honest. Uh, all of what you said, I think, is relevant. I think I do agree with some of the comments that have come out of the England camp that 
other than a couple of minor arguments where you could say that um, there's maybe a couple of guys on the periphery, perhaps a James Vince or a Sam Billings that are better than someone that's in that 18-man squad that's gone over there or, or a Clark. There aren't too many questions really that these are probably about the best cricketers we could have picked to go on this tour with the exception probably a Jofra Archer being injured and not able to come on the tour. So look, I think ultimately the the problems that are deep-rooted with this, the system and the fact that county cricket and four-day cricket particularly has been with the 100 pushed to the very margins of the season and you're facing little dibbly-dobbly seamers on pitches in April and September where it's nipping around, that, that hasn't helped. You know, the 100 hasn't helped. We've got probably one competition too many uh, domestically that we play. And then there's all the other factors as well. We play a hell of a lot of test cricket. We've played more test cricket than anyone else um, through the course of this pandemic. Um, and it doesn't really give guys the ability to go and do what someone like a Travis Head has been able to do, which is to get in some quality practice in a strong domestic uh, tournament in order to be able to come in and, and, and excel um, in test cricket. And you only need to look at the stats. Australia have got, um, I think, six players averaging um, higher than England's um, uh, two best players on this tour. And that includes Mitchell Stark averaging 75 with the bat. Um, and then with the ball, there's a couple of anomalies there. You've got Boland who's coming and is averaging 8.64. Um, if that lasts for much longer, then Board is going to need to rewrite his 100 greatest cricketers. Um, and, and then you've got uh, Cameron Green averaging 15 with the ball, Cummins 20 with the ball, and Nathan Lyon 23 over the course of the series. All better than England's best bowler, which is Jimmy Anderson averaging 23. So l- lots and lots of problems. And, and look, I'd agree with you, Raj. That, that, you know, it's not particularly rosy when you've not really got any test match batsmen of quality, uh, with the exception of Joe Root. That's a great segue into a great uh, test match batsman of quality. I just want to mention uh, Usman Khawaja. I think that he batted extremely well in a situation which, you know, when he first came into the, the fourth test, looked like a no-win situation for him. Uh, no matter if he scored runs, he probably wasn't going to retain that number five spot. That's now up in the air. But, um, yeah, someone who's had a rocky history with Australian selection uh and really, he scored over 2,000 runs in Australia, which I find that that's actually quite incredible. Um, so, yeah, I, I just wanted to shout out Esmond Kwaja, and I'll throw over to, to a couple of you who I think want to praise him as well. Baldy, I just want to say he's got to play in, the, in that next test, doesn't he? And and um, he's got to play for Harris. He's he's. I know that you know maybe some of you guys who actually have batted close a lot closer to the top order than, than I ever have can tell me the difference between you know, actually just picking your best five or six batters in terms of uh, having someone who is the, the specialist opener. But mm. he, he's got to play, doesn't he? You can't drop a guy after scoring 200s. I mean, that'd be like dropping someone after they get 10 for in a mat, in an innings. Yeah, very, very similar scenarios. Usman Kawaja, small sample size, averages 96.8 opening the batting, and he's got a couple of hundreds, I think, at the top of the order. So he has pedigree in terms of opening the batting for Australia. I just want to highlight his record now in terms of how good he has been and not been in the side. He's played 45 test matches now, has 3,125 runs, at an average of 43.4. To give that some perspective, since 1990, 
Usman Khawaja has a better average than Alan Border, Chris Rogers, Michael Slater, Travis Head, Mark War, Mark Taylor, Andrew Simons, Dean Jones, Marcus North, Shane Watson, Sean Marsh, Greg Blewett, Matt Elliott, Phil Hughes, Tim Payne, Ed Cowan, Jeff Marsh, Matt Wade, Michael Bevan, and a whole bunch of others, including Mitchell Marsh right down there at the bottom. And he still can't get a consistent run in that Australian test side. It's bizarre. Look, Marcus Harris is a fine cricketer. I think if you're not going to do this whole let's look to the future thing, and let's face it, Will Pukowski is a future opening batter for Australia. I think it's not, there's no contest. Usman Khawaja is a better player, in my view, than, than Marcus Harris, who has, to be fair, uh, performed better and better as this series has gone on. And having scored runs in Melbourne and having gotten a couple of starts in Sydney, he'll be unlucky to miss out. But you just cannot, you cannot drop a guy who's got back-to-back hundreds and who said after the Test match, I don't actually expect to play in Hobart. I've gone and done my job. I've, I really enjoy playing cricket for Queensland. I've got one opportunity to play here for Australia. I've gone and done my, my, my job for the team. And actually, I don't really expect to get picked for Hobart, which is about as good an answer as you can possibly give in that situation. So, look... Usman Kawaja must be picked for Australia in that last test match, even if it means, actually, that Travis Head has to wait for his spot back. Well, I think, boys, that we need to segue here before my head explodes at the sheer incredulousness, if that even is a word, of Usman Kawaja possibly being left out of the Hobart tests. There is India in South Africa going on at the moment. Stu, do you want to just sum up this test match with a couple of summary comments? Yeah, look... um Look, I'm wrong about it because probably the way we sort of view this series might be based on uh, this test that's just about to start. I think might be just first ball might be being bowled as as we're recording this podcast. There's just so much test cricket going on at the moment. We couldn't kind of line up everything to to make it work. But I'll just say that it's been a fascinating series so far. You know, we we saw uh, the particularly that second test where um, I just. I tuned in and, and even the first test actually tuning in on those kind of final days and you didn't know who was going to who was going to come through and, and that's just been brilliant. South Africa, I think it's a it's great that they're pushing India so hard, but on the other side showing what a, what an amazing side India is to be able to go somewhere like South Africa which, you know, as much as their cricket might have been underperforming in recent times is always a very difficult place for for visiting sides to go. So, look I think that the, let's let's give it its proper dues next next week when we actually uh, know the result of this second test and and can uh, look at it in detail. We, we'll obviously probably talk about Quinton de Kock a little bit at that time as well. Yeah, huge test match coming up, and I'm really interested to see what. Pujara and Rahane can do because I think they're starting to get towards the end of their rope. They've made some starts, but they haven't really gone on to make any big scores. So they're the two names on the scorecard that I'll be watching from this India-South Africa match uh, that's about to take place just as we as we wrap up this recording. Well, team, that does just about wrap up our first episode of 2022. There's no shortage of cricket on the way unless Baldi's head explodes at the incredulousness of a potential omission for Usman Khawaja. He'll be back on the podcast alongside all of us next week as we talk more and more test cricket, the climax of some of those domestic T20 tournaments and the rest of the New Zealand summer. But for now, it's good night and God bless from us here. See you soon.